In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Welcome, Northangley, to our series, Leading Together. For five weeks, we are diving into this topic on women, men, and authority in the church. And our desire as a church is to be followers of Jesus, apprentice to Jesus. And we're trying to discover the roles that God has set aside for both men and women in the leadership of his church, of his body, his family. And the question we're asking is simply this. Are all leadership roles in the church open to both men and women? That's the question. Are all leadership roles in the church open to both men and women? And here at North Langley, we're saying, yes, yes. Women are called to serve in primary positions of leadership in the church. Men and women are both called into leading together, this partnership, this teamwork. And we're unpacking the scriptures so that you can be convinced of that as well. And I just need to make one comment about that, about this five-week series. If at the end of this five-week series, um, for you, as you wrestle with, this, with the scriptures, you're still not in a place of agreement with, with, with our church leadership, please know this church is for you. This is your family. And you are more than welcome to stay here. In so many ways, we as Christians have chosen to agree to disagree on issues. I mean, two really obvious ones are uh, uh, the age of the earth. Some, some believe in six days, others that those six days are a bit of a picture of longer periods of time, right? The age of the earth or the second coming of Jesus, right? Think about, you know, certain Christians have charts and maps, right? And others are like, we just trust that he's gonna come again and it's gonna look, you know, maybe a little bit like this. And so there's this, We've chosen to agree to disagree on many things, and um, I hope that in the, in the, as the years uh, roll on here at North Langley, that both complementarians and egalitarians will feel like this church can be, can be home. And so uh, please know that, if it, that after these five weeks, we hope that this can still be your church family, um, no matter where you've, you've landed on the position. I want to highlight um, a, a little a link on our website, nlcc.ca slash leading. If you'd like kind of a one-stop place to, to check out the sermons and, and podcasts, the After Sunday podcast, also the letter from the Elder Board, uh, book recommendations, and an opportunity to ask questions. There's a, there's a place uh, online where you can ask a question. Now, obviously, many of you have emailed me. Uh, my inbox went this last week. Uh, but uh, if you, uh, you know, that's great. But if you would like to just ask a question for everyone to see, um, we have a feature on this link. And what people can do is you can go on and vote for the question that you want answered. So as the five weeks uh, kind of unroll, or as we unpack these five weeks, make sure that you're asking questions and maybe voting on the question that you've shared with others. And I'd love to be able to kind of tackle some of those as the, as the weeks go on. Now, if you were with us uh, last week, we started off our five-week series looking at the book of Genesis, and we really wanted to start just with Genesis. Um, some of the emails that I've been chatting with people, we, we're already jumping to Paul, but at the hope week one was just, just a park right there in Genesis to listen. And we were asking the question, do we see a hierarchy of roles in Genesis, right? Do we see men called by God to lead over women? in authority? 
or do we see this partnership, co-ruling creation? Now, complementarians will say yes. And by the way, if you are brand new, I was told uh, I need to define those terms every week. So complementarians, those, those of you who, who would say yes, uh, men and women are equal in God's sight, equal in terms of salvation and, uh, and uh, given gifts by the Spirit with equality, but that there are roles that men are called to be in authority over women. Um, they are the head or the leaders of the church and the home. So that's the complementarian position, to complementary genders who have different roles. Does that make sense? And the egalitarian position is one that says um, that men and women um, have total equality, as the complementarian said, but that, that the roles are actually uh, equal in leadership when it comes to, uh, when it comes to the church. Uh, their equality of roles, and when it comes to the home as well, that there's this mutual submission to one another that we read about in Ephesians 5.21, mutual submission. So does that make sense? Complementarian, egalitarian, just trying to bring everyone up to speed here. So, so complementarians see a hierarchy of roles in Genesis, right? Adam leading Eve. But egalitarians say we don't see that. We see this co-partnership in ruling creation. Okay. I believe that in Eden we do see partnership, that we see teamwork, that we see these two complementary genders that reflect God's image, two complementary genders who care for creation together. We're better when women and men are leading together. Now today, in week two uh, of our series, we're going to study the women that we see in leadership in the Bible. That's today's topic. We want to study the lives of women whom God used in leadership positions in, uh, amongst his people. Today will feel like a tour of the Bible, and a quick one. From the Old Testament story of Miriam to the New Testament story of Phoebe, we're going to embark on this kind of whirlwind tour of the Bible. You ready? Got your Bible? Hopefully it's open. And uh, here's the deal. We want to see the way in which God has equipped women and called women into positions of leadership, not just ministry. See, complementarians and egalitarians agree that, that women are called into ministry. But complementarians would say, women are called into ministry to other women and to children, whereas uh, egalitarians would say, women are co-equals with men and called into leadership across the whole church. And so I want us to see these women called into positions of leadership and authority. Now, I want to, again, I want to tell you why we're going to do this. Why are we doing this? Well, for the next three weeks, if you join us uh, for the next three weeks, we are going to tackle three difficult passages of Scripture. When I say difficult, capitalize the D, okay? Very difficult passages of Scripture. Those three passages must be understood in light of all the Scriptures, Unless we understand what we looked at last week, Genesis 1 to 3, and unless we understand what we're going to look at today, women leaders in the Bible, I don't think we'll have the tools that we need to understand the next three weeks. Do you get what I'm saying? Like last week and today are meant to be kind of like a foundation, right? Kind of the, the core. And it's from this foundation that we're able to understand the next three weeks. And I, and I want to give you a flavor for this. Okay, and I hope this is okay to do. I want to give you a flavor. 
Let me jump ahead two weeks from now. In two weeks, we're going to study the following verse written by Paul in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 2. Okay? This is going to be one of the verses, the difficult verses we study. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Woo, is right. Yeah. yeah. What do you do with that verse? It's in the Bible. How do you make sense of that passage? If I were in a hotel and I grabbed a Gideon's Bible in the hotel room, you know those? They're like in the little, you know, Gideon's always put a Bible there. It's awesome. And I was done watching Netflix <laughs> or sports or whatever. And I was like, oh, I'm going to read the Bible. I'm new to Jesus. I don't know anything. New to Christianity. I'm like, I've always wanted to read the Bible. So I start reading the Bible. And by the way, some of you are new to Jesus and you're like, that's me. <laughs> uh, and you start reading the Bible in this English translation without looking at the context or the Greek, what would I think? I think, I would think, women are not allowed to lead in positions of authority over men in the church, right? Seems clear. I think that's what I would think. Paul's saying, I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. Now, let me challenge those of you who hold the same position that I do, the egalitarian position, right? Let me challenge egalitarians for a second. What do you do with this verse? What do you do with it? What are, uh, I mean this in a positive way, what are, the, what, are the, what are the tools that begin to go through your mind in, in order to understand this verse? Many complementarians say, seems clear, right? And egalitarians, what, what do you say? I, I don't believe it's good enough to say, I don't know what that verse means, but it's 2023, and I know women are good leaders, right? And just so you know, that's not a bad answer. I think our reason and our experience contribute to our understanding of truth. I totally get that, right? Just so you know, in the early church, Jewish Christians were starting to notice that those who were not circumcised were receiving the Spirit, and it was that experience is that experience of seeing Gentiles receive the Spirit that led them to go back to the Word and back to the truth, right? Does that make sense? So it's not bad, because I, believe, I agree with you. Women are great leaders, fantastic leaders. But I want to encourage all of us, both egalitarians and complementarians, to arrive at our position anchored in Scripture, right? In truth. I want us to get there in truth. So... If you're interested in hearing how I believe 1 Timothy 2 is best interpreted, come back in two weeks, okay? Just going to dangle that in front of you, right? <laughs> okay. But, but, but one of the steps we must take when interpreting the Bible is to take every verse of Scripture and interpret it in light of the whole Bible. We're to ask, how does this one verse make sense in light of all of Scripture? Are you tracking with me? Does that make sense? Today, I believe that when we sit back and look at the list of female leaders who led with authority in the Bible, it'll set up a tension for us when we dive into 1 Timothy 2, when we dive into 1 Corinthians 11, when we dive into 1 Corinthians 14. 
As you see the many women who have led and taught God's people, I, I literally, I want you to feel attention. <laughs> to go, well, hold on a second, right? When I come to 1 Corinthians 14 next week, or when I come to 1 Timothy 2, I'm feeling this tension. Because those verses must not mean what we think they mean upon a first read. Why? Because I hope you'll see. I hope you'll see that God in his joy and goodness has been delighted to call women into position of leadership and authority over his people for thousands of years. I hope you see that today. So, King Jesus, we welcome you here. Come, have your way among us. Give light to our eyes. Open up your word that we would truly understand it. And God, give us grace for one another on this journey. Lord, I do pray that in the coming minutes, you would fan the flame of a passion for leadership amongst men and women in this room. And particularly, I lift up women in this room who maybe have felt like they've hit a glass ceiling and maybe been discouraged by some in their life away from leadership in the church. And God, that today you would just ignite that fire in them and uh, that you would lead them and guide them. And Lord, today for all of us, lead us and guide us. We're listening. We're, we're your apprentices. We really want to follow you. And I pray that you would um, speak. In your name we pray. Amen. Scott McKnight, in his book, Blue Parakeet, asked the question, what did women do in the Bible? If we want to be biblical, this question needs to be asked and answered. And by the way, if you're interested in a really great book that helps you kind of understand how to read the Bible, some of you are like, it seems like the Bible's really complex, right? Greek, Hebrew, context, so many things to think about. I'd encourage you to pick up this book, Blue Parakeet. It's a great book. And one of the case studies is women as leaders in the Bible. It's a great uh, Scott McKnight, New Testament professor from the United States. He, he's a great guide in terms of how to interpret the Bible. But he asked that question, what did women do in the Bible? So that's the question we're asking. And we begin with the story of Miriam, Miriam in the Old Testament. Let's look at Miriam. Miriam was, as many of you know, Moses' sister. And she was in a position of leadership amongst God's people. Listen to God speaking to his people in the book of Micah. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. The people of Israel had three leaders, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. And in Exodus 15, we see that Miriam was a prophet in Israel, a leader and a prophet in Israel. Have you heard of the name Deborah? Deborah was a judge and a prophet God raised up to lead his people. Judges at this time in history are not just those in a courtroom like we would imagine it today. Um, they were leaders of the people, leading Israel. Listen to Judges 4.4. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel. Note that, underline that, leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. Notice, she had authority. The Bible's clear. She was leading Israel at that time. People came to her to, uh, to, to have their disputes resolved. She had this wisdom in her leadership. It's very clear in the text. Have you heard of the prophet Huldah? 
Just so you know, this is one of my favorite parts of this morning. Hulda. I got to introduce you to Hulda. I, I feel like many of us who have read the Bible, like cover to cover, we're just like, how did we miss Hulda? I totally forgot her story. Check it out. By the way, for all of you men and women who are interested in, in interpreting the Bible, um, uh, let me introduce you to your new hero. You're welcome already. Let me tell you the story. King Josiah, Josiah, king of Israel, um, is told that the Torah, God's law, has been discovered. So I know it might be, sound weird to us, but Israel lost the law, right? There was a period of time where they lost the Torah. And it was rediscovered. And so King Josiah is having the law read out loud, and he starts to hear how God's people have not lived up to his heart and his law. And he needs help to interpret what this could mean for the people of Israel. And so he needs to find somebody to consult. And he's got some options. And I'll, and I'll let Scott McKnight pick up the story. He writes this, quote, Josiah falls apart in godly repentance and needs discernment. What should he do? To which of God's prophets shall he send word to consult? Here are his options. He could consult Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Nahum, Habakkuk, or Huldah. The first four have books in Israel's collection of prophets, but he chooses Huldah above the rest. Huldah's not chosen because no men were available. She's chosen because she is truly exceptional among the prophets. Notice, King Josiah has got these four men who have books, like in our Bible, right? You know, prophets of the Lord. But King Josiah chooses Huldah because she's better at it, right? She's good at what she does. She is a prophet who interprets God's law and teaches the leaders of Israel. Okay, we don't have time to talk about Esther's wisdom, Abigail's intelligence, Jael's courage, Ruth's courage, or even wisdom, which is personified as a female in the book of Proverbs. I wanna jump to the New Testament and to some female leaders we find in the early church. In Acts 2, Peter stands up and uses the words from the prophet Joel to announce the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And I read these words uh, a couple minutes ago. Uh, Peter says this, In the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. And here it is. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Just so you know, in the next few weeks, we're going to talk a lot about prophecy. It's really important. It's really important to understand what it is, to understand what women were doing in the early church. But it's clear, both men and women are called to prophesy. To prophesy is to teach. Just so you guys know, uh, Tom Schreiner, very famous complementarian, he said, if I were ever to become egalitarian, he said, it would be through the prophecy, uh, through this Note, right? He says, this is a hard one for complementarians to, to understand and to deal with, right? It's prophecy. Women were prophesying. They spoke God's words to his people. So remember that difficult verse, 1 Timothy 2, earlier? Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. They must be silent. Well, clearly, women are not silent. They're prophesying, Right? They're, they're, they're speaking words from the Lord, thus saith the Lord, with authority in the church. So what's going on? In Acts 18, Paul meets a couple named Priscilla and Aquila. They served with Paul in church ministry. 
They're great. They're, they, they led together. They're a married couple who do ministry together. Uh, and they're such a beautiful example of this, this, this team that leads together. And, and we read this story about the two of them mentoring a man named Apollos who, knew, who already knew a lot about the Bible, but he needed deeper direction. So here's what happened with Apollos. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. So I just want to pause and I want us to notice something that's glaringly obvious in the text. Priscilla is teaching Apollos. Priscilla is teaching Apollos, right? It's right there. Priscilla, a woman, is teaching Apollos with authority. Now, uh, a very valid complementarian pushback is that, well, Aquila was there. Her husband was there, right? So maybe she's only teaching because his, uh, he's there. His authority is there in the room, right? So she's teaching with the blessing of her husband's authority, right? That's, that's the pushback to this text. But I guess my pushback to the pushback is that it's not at all evident in the text that that's why she's been... That, that's why she's doing this, or allowed to do this, right? It simply says that Priscilla and Aquila invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. So upon face value, Priscilla is teaching Apollos. And you might be interested to know that Priscilla is named first. And that's not a trivial detail. Kate Cooper, professor of ancient history at the University of Manchester, writes... Quote, ancient writers often referred to a married couple by the man's name only. So the choice to name Priscilla and to put her name first is significant. It's significant. Priscilla is teaching Apollos. And Apollos was a smart individual. He already had a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. And Priscilla is explaining the way of God more adequately to him, right? And she is a co-worker of Paul. One of the other clues why a complementarian reading might fall a bit short is because of the phrase co-worker. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, Romans 16.3. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. See, if it was only Aquila, only the husband, he would be the co-worker. But it's Priscilla and Aquila who are co-workers. And did you know that Timothy and Titus are also referred to as co-workers of Paul? Priscilla is in a pretty impressive group of male early church leaders. And I'll say more about coworkers in a second, so just hold that thought. Have you heard the name Junia before? Junia, J-U-N-I-A. Check out um, Romans 16, but really quick. Junia, well, let's just, let's just go there. Romans 16, 7. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews, who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Okay, here's a married couple, Andronicus and Junia. Seems like they're married. And they, are, they have been in prison with Paul. Now notice, they are outstanding among the apostles. Well, that's interesting. Outstanding among the apostles? So Andronicus and Junia are apostles? Well, what's an apostle? Apostle is a leader church planter, you know, carrying the good news of the gospel, right? Missionary, theologian, right? This is, 
apostles. And some of us have probably thought, as I did for many years, that there were only 12 apostles. But in a minute, I'll read you some other apostles in the New Testament. There was, it was a wider group of apostles. And so notice that Andronicus and Junia, they are sent to prison with Paul. And the idea here is that Junia was such a threat that she had to be sent to prison with Paul. She was, an apostle, she was an apostle sent to prison because apparently she was enough of a threat as a leader to be put away, needs to be put away. Normal kind of uh, Christians in the empire are probably not put away as quickly as those who were leaders. And so here's Junia, an apostle and a leader. Now, just so you know, some in history have tried to argue that this is a male name a male name, that we've mistranslated this, that it's not Junia, it's Junius. Junius. Add an S, that's a male name. Okay, and, and I think because partly when Bible translators come to this passage, sometimes in the back of our mind we think, well, it says Junia, but women were not allowed to be apostles, so it must be Junius, right? And so you, you add the S, as it were. Right? And some older translations of the Bible in English have had the word Junius, right? Because it just couldn't, it didn't compute that a woman could be an apostle. But most scholars, and actually many complementarian scholars as well, are starting to see that, okay, that was a mistake. This, this, is, a, this is a female name. It's a female name, right? Um, let, 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 just listen to Linda Belleville. She explains a bit more. She says, quote, the masculine name Junius simply does not occur in any inscription, on any tombstone, in any letterhead or letter, or in any literary work contemporary with New Testament findings or writings. In fact, Junius does not exist in any extant Greek or Latin document of the Greco-Roman period. On the other hand, the feminine Junia is quite common and well attested in both Greek and Latin inscriptions. Over 250 examples to date have been documented in Rome alone. Okay, this, this is a female name, right? It's right there in the text, a female name. Junia is an apostle, a sent missionary, a church planter, a theologian, a teacher, a proclaimer of the good news, right? A leader. And other apostles in the New Testament are people like Barnabas in Acts 14, James in Galatians 1, Epaphroditus in Philippians 2, and other quote-unquote brothers in 2 Corinthians 8. She is in a pretty incredible list of early church leaders. And the 4th century bishop of Constantinople, John Chrysostom, wrote this, quote, how great is the devotion of this woman, Junia, that she should be even counted worthy of the appellation of an apostle. The early church knew this was a woman, and she was an apostle. If you want to hear more about Junia, there's lots more to say. Feel free to tune in this week to the After Sunday podcast. Corey and I are going to do a little bit of a deeper dive into Junia. But let's move on. Two other names. Do you, do you remember the names Iodia and Syntyche in the book of Philippians? Some of you will remember those names. Now, unfortunately for Yodia and Syntyche, they had an argument 2,000 years ago, and it's gone in to be in the Bible, 
which is just really unfortunate for them. Like, imagine your, your disagreement with your friend forever documented for 2,000 years. It's rough. But uh, we, read this, we read this story, but we miss the fact that they are leaders. Okay, so check it out. Philippians 4, 2-3. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. So it's almost like we're blinded by their argument, <laughs> but, we're, but we don't see the fact that these are leaders. Yodi and Syntyche, Paul says, have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. At Paul's side, right? In the cause of the gospel. They are co-workers with Paul. They're leaders. And by the way, just a comment really quick. Um, why do you think Paul needs to address this to the church at Philippi? It's because maybe these, are, these two ladies are, are actually leaders. And you have, a, you have two leaders in the church which is bringing deep division. These are not just two random ladies, right? This is actually two women who are leaders in the church, and it's causing division at Philippi. And so they're co-workers with Paul. And again, back to co-workers. The term co-workers is used with Priscilla and Aquila, Timothy, Titus, Apollos, Philemon, Epaphroditus, Justus, Mark, and Luke, among others. Paul uses this term for really important people. Now, if you will, flip to Romans 16. You can, you can go to it quickly if you'd like. And just start to kind of survey the names listed there. Sometimes we think Romans 16 is boring, but a lot of commentators are finding that in Romans 16, there is just a lot of stuff to see, really cool stuff to notice in the, in the chapter. And I want you to notice as you scan the names, these are people that Paul is saying hello to. Say hello to them, greet them, Say hi to them, right? He knows a lot of people at the church at Rome. But notice that a bunch of the people on the list are women. Women who have served with Paul or who had a profound influence on Paul deep, or friends with Paul. So we see Priscilla, Mary, Junia, Tryphena, Tryphosa, Persis, and Julia. By the way, if any of you ever give birth to twin girls, Tryphena and Tryphosa, is a, it's great. Like, I feel like that's a great uh, two female names there from the Greek world. Paul worked with women in the early church. Do you see that? <laughs> it's a beautiful list of people. Women who look a lot like leaders are in that list. And, and I'd like to highlight uh, the woman who is on the top of the list there, Phoebe. Let's talk about Phoebe. Phoebe's the first person on the list. And we read this, I commend to you, says Paul, our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sincrea. I commend to you Phoebe. So Paul is sending Phoebe uh, with the letter to the Romans. Okay, and I'll say more about that in a second. I commend to you Phoebe. Notice Phoebe is a deacon in the early church. Now, who are deacons? Deacons are in charge of leading in areas of service and care and assistance to those who are in need. Now, I want to show you something interesting, really quick. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, we hear Paul say that deacons should be husbands. Okay? Just pause for a second. He's very clear that deacons should be husbands, right? Listen to this. 1 Timothy 3.12. A deacon must be faithful to his wife 
and must manage his children and his household well. So, upon face value, when you read that, you're like, oh, okay, so deacons are men, right? Only, only men are allowed to be deacons. But Paul calls Phoebe a deacon in Romans 16. And Paul, same guy, says deacons should be husbands. Welcome to the Bible. Okay, see, this, is, this is the joy of understanding the Bible. Do you see the tension here? First, so the way I read it, 1 Timothy 3 cannot be a general prohibition on women being deacons because Phoebe's a deacon. And Paul's aware of that. She's his friend, right? Same Paul. More than that, what's really interesting is that Paul entrusts Phoebe to carry the letter that Paul wrote to the Romans in Rome. Now, there's been a lot of scholarship on this, and I'm not going to land the plane today. I'm just going to tell you an option that is available. So complementarians will say all Phoebe did, so this is a fair, all Phoebe did was take the letter, put it in her satchel, (laughs) and took it to Rome. Right? She left Corinth and took it to Rome, right? So she's like, it's like Amazon delivery, right? I'm giving you the letter. Take it and read it, right? It's fair. That, that, that could be true, just so you know. That could be very true. Lots of smart people believe that. Or maybe, potentially, um, a letter carrier did a bit more than just carry the letter. That they were actually entrusted, because they were in communication with the person who wrote the letter, to not only deliver the letter there at Rome, but to help understand the letter once they were there. So uh, listen to Bible scholar Ben Witherington on how likely it is that Phoebe was the first to teach the church at Rome from Paul's letter to the Romans. That's a big deal. Listen to this. The notion that Paul would just send letters off to be deciphered afresh by bewildered, semi-literate converts is a nonsense. Okay, he's a bit heavier than I'm trying to be okay today. So this, this is not how ancient literary texts were normally treated. To the contrary, it is far more likely that Paul had someone take the text his scribe had written, already knowing its contents, and then orally deliver the text at the destination with full ability to comment on and explain the text. So the letter comes with someone to help make sense of it. Because by the way, the book of Romans is pretty, pretty dense. <laughs> what did Paul mean? Well... I was just with him, let me tell you. (laughs) Let me explain a bit more. So could it be that Phoebe was not just the male woman who delivers the letter, but she's the first to teach the church at Rome from the book of Romans? Wow, wouldn't that make her a teacher, a leader, someone of great influence? This led N.T. Wright, one of the world's foremost theologians in the New Testament, to comment saying, quote, the first ever exposition of Paul's letter to the Romans was done by a Christian businesswoman from Eastern Corinth, Phoebe. So you see the complexity of what we're dealing with here. But what I want to do is I want to end with Jesus. I want to end with Jesus. And what I'm going to do, these were very specific examples of women as leaders, but what I want to do is just kind of pull back and ask the question when it comes to Jesus, where did the early church get the idea um, of, 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 of that women were empowered to be leaders? And I think it's rooted in Jesus, rooted in God's heart and creation, but it's anchored in Jesus. So let's look at Jesus. When we look at the ministry of Jesus, we are startled to see the way in which Jesus was breaking down barriers between men and women in radical ways. A teaching around the time Jesus lived once said this, quote, the words of Torah 
should be burned rather than be taught to a woman. The words of, of Torah, which is God's law, should be burned rather than taught to a woman. This gives you a flavor for the kind of world Jesus lived in and, and ministered in. And yet Jesus gave dignity to women and trusted women and called women to be disciples. Listen to Luke 8. Jesus traveled from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with them and also women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna and many others. Many women followed Jesus as his disciples. Jesus gave dignity to women. Think of Mary. Mary and her sister Martha welcomed Jesus to their home, and Martha worked hard with preparations to host Jesus. You can imagine Martha in her mind has got Ezer. Remember from Genesis? She's the help, so that means she's in the kitchen, right? And she's trying to prepare the meal. But her sister Mary is like in the living room learning from Jesus. She did, she's a disciple, an apprentice. The posture of a student, right? And so this conflict is there. And Mary's not in the kitchen, right? And so Martha's upset and comes to Jesus to complain about her sister. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. <laughs> right? That, that, that women are called to be as heir, like the strength of God, right? Not just in the kitchen, although if the kitchen is awesome, then that's great too for men and women, right? But that there's this invitation Jesus has giving all of us, men and women, to come and to hear the truth of the scriptures, to be apprenticed to him. And Mary has chosen to be a student and an apprentice. The words of Torah should be burned rather than taught to a woman. Jesus doesn't think so. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. In John 4, Jesus shows up uh, to a Samaritan village, and there's a marginalized woman at a well, and he begins a dialogue with her. And he reveals his identity to who she is, to, who, uh, to her, about who she, he actually is. He, and then he tells this woman to go into the village and tell the good news about who he is, who's shown up in their village. That sounds like empowerment. That sounds like Jesus trusts women. That sounds like Jesus was entrusting a woman to share the good news about who he was to an entire village of both men and women, teaching, having authority, proclaiming the good news. And then we look and see the women at the empty tomb. The testimony of, woman, of a woman was regarded as so worthless in Jesus' day that it would not be admitted into a Jewish court of law. Just imagine that for a second. You witnessed something criminal, but you're a woman. We, we, we don't trust your eyewitness account. We're only looking for the men who may have seen what happened. Can you imagine? The Jewish and Roman historian Josephus, writing shortly after the life of Jesus, wrote, quote, let not the testimony of women be admitted. But the New Testament confirms, and we celebrate this every Easter, that the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection was a group of women. That God, in his goodness, wanted women to be the first ones to run off and proclaim the good news that he was alive. 
The women come to the empty tomb Easter morning and an angel says this to them, quote, do not be afraid for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, he has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he's risen from the dead. Women were the first to announce the gospel. They were the, they were the first eyewitnesses. And if you're writing this story in the first century, you don't add that detail if you want your story to be credible. Go immediately to the story of Peter and be like, yeah, and Peter saw it too. Yeah, Peter witnessed the empty tomb. That makes the story credible. But no, women are said to be the first ones there. That's how God planned it. That's God's desire. And so Christians wrote it down that way. They were just telling the truth. They're just telling the truth. Then Jesus rebukes his disciples for not believing the women. This is a great little moment, right? And by the way, Peter's included in the ones that get the rebuke, right? Listen to this. Later, Jesus appeared to the 11. That includes Peter, not Judas, right? He appeared to the 11 as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. He's talking about the women, you didn't believe them, right? And I don't know all the reasons, but for good or bad, Peter had to go see it himself. Right? I'm not sure I believe them. He's rebuking the disciples for not believing the testimony of women. And so I want to ask myself the question, as a, as a man, have there been moments in my life where I have given less credibility to the teaching, the preaching, a book, whatever it is, of a woman, because she's a woman? Have I leaned more towards the testimony of men when it comes to the gospel? When I, when I hear Jesus, he would have a word of rebuke to me. The British writer and apologist Dorothy Sayers, a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, wrote this, quote, perhaps it is no wonder that the women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this man. There had never been such another. A prophet and teacher who never nagged at them, who never flattered or coaxed or patronized. He who took their questions and arguments seriously, never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no ax to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend who took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. Now, finally, look at Jesus. We take our cues from Jesus. And when the early church, including Paul, <laughs> watched the way Jesus gave dignity to women, it's no wonder we come across names like Junia and Phoebe and Priscilla and so on. Because Jesus was reversing the curse of the fall. Remember last week? That idea of men ruling over women seems to be embedded in the curse of the fall. And when Jesus empowers women, it, it, it looks like he's taking us back to the plan, right? Back to the original plan of partnership and unity. And Jesus takes the curse upon his own life and upon his own shoulders, and he dies on the cross that the curse would be broken, that you and I might find healing. Healing, from, healing between us and God because of our sin, but also healing between us and our neighbor 
And I wonder how much division has happened amongst men and women in the last 2,000 years. How much division, how many walls, barriers have been built? Whether it's siblings, whether it's coworkers, whether it's marriages, whether it's church leaders, like whatever, right? And would the cross be the place where that division is healed? Where the curse would be broken and that Jesus would just pour his good news into those places of pain. Because Jesus has promised to make all things new, to start putting a broken world back together, and that starts with you and I. Listen to John Stott, quote, without any fuss or publicity, Jesus terminated the curse of the fall, reinvested woman with her partially lost nobility, and reclaimed for his new kingdom community the original creation blessing of sexual equality. So North Langley, just listen to the list. Miriam, leader in Israel. Deborah, judge and leader in Israel. Huldah, brilliant prophet and teacher. Mary, called as a disciple. The woman at the well, given the good news to proclaim in her Samaritan village. Women at the empty tomb, the first to announce the good news that Jesus is alive. In Acts 2, The Spirit calls both men and women to prophesy, to teach with authority. Priscilla, a co-worker with Paul and a teacher of Apollos. Junia, an apostle who is imprisoned for her leadership. Yodia and Syntyche, co-workers with Paul. Phoebe, a deacon and a letter carrier to the church at Rome. Potentially, possibly the first to preach the message of Romans to the church at Rome. All of this leads Belleville to argue the following. Women are singled out in the early church as apostles, prophets, evangelists, patrons, teachers, deacons, prayer leaders, overseers of house churches, prayer warriors, and those who were known for their mercy and hospitality. So when I'm studying the Bible and studying the scriptures, I see women as leaders of his church. It seems clear to me. And so when I come to the next three weeks, When I come to passages like 1 Timothy 2, where I hear Paul say, I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. (laughs) Paul knew that women weren't quiet. Paul worked with women who were leaders. And so there's a tension there. And so maybe some of those verses mean something a little different. And we'll get to that. But the question is, what did women do in the Bible? If we want to be biblical, this question needs to be asked and answered. And women led. Women were filled with the Spirit, empowered with gifts, and they led. It's right there in the scriptures. So I believe we're better when women and men are leading together. Let's stand together as we end in worship. A reminder um, for this week in our life groups to practice lots of love, grace, unity with one another as we unpack the scriptures. I would encourage you to go for coffee. Maybe you're aware that one of your good friends uh, sees the scriptures a little bit differently than you do. Would you go for coffee this week? Just talk about it. I mean, I have found that beginning those conversations and beginning to talk about it just brings this deep understanding between people, um, which is beautiful, and we experience a unity there. As we end, I would like to ask um, some of you who are women 
to begin to um, ask yourself the question, was there a moment in my life where some cold water was poured on a bit of a flame that I had in my own life to be a leader in the church? Maybe I was discouraged away from being a leader of a Bible study or a life group. Maybe I was discouraged from taking a certain um, degree program in the Bible, you know? Uh, maybe I was encouraged away from applying for that position at a church. I don't know. And so I wonder if today the Spirit of God could reignite a fire in some of you who um, need the encouragement that you, that you can be a leader and that you can lead God's people. Could, could the Spirit of God do that in the room today? And by the way, I would include men there too. You know, it, it's not particularly about this exact topic, because maybe you've known that you're free to be a pastor, an elder, leader, whatever, but somebody discouraged you as well. And maybe the Spirit could bring a healing in your life today. And so I want to pray. Would you close your eyes? Join me in prayer. One final group I want to talk to is those of you who are new to Jesus. And maybe you've been coming for a number of weeks and you're just really drawn to Jesus. And you see the healing that he's bringing to the world. And maybe today you'd want to come forward and maybe talk to one of our prayer team members and tell them that you're interested in Jesus. Feel free to come forward and explore more about who he is. And Lord, Lord God, we give this moment to you as we worship you. And we just ask that you would come in your, in your mercy and your goodness and fill this room. And Lord, there's all kinds of emotions swirling around the room. But we're asking in your mercy that you would heal us that you would give us unity in the days ahead. And God, very specifically for women in the room who uh, hear this list of leaders and um, there's just a fire <laughs> in them to want to lead. God, would you fan the flame? Would you encourage them today? Would you fill them with your Holy Spirit? Lord, we love you. And we give the next number of minutes to you. Would you just have your way in us? Fill this room with your peace, your love, your kindness. And we're listening to you. Come Holy Spirit.